I guess three hours wasn't enough. But hey, it's Friday night. It's Friday night. Let's talk. All day. <laughs> all day, all night talking. Um, I just, I'm really getting a kick out of it. I don't know what it is, but like, like I'm just, I'm making an effort to look at headlines and, and what people are talking about. And I'm just, I'm cracking up constantly. <laughs> I just saw that Eric, <laughs> like I, I had vaguely heard something about how Eric Clapton, my fellow Eric, was, uh, how he's against vaccinations and lockdown and all that. And uh, I, I just, I, I came across this headline where he released a new song called This Has Gotta Stop. And it's about COVID apparently, or it's about lockdowns and everything. And I just love that Eric Clapton, at this stage of his career, his twilight years, I love that he's writing an anti-lockdown. I don't know what the lyric, I didn't listen to this song. I'm, I'm not an Eric Clapton fan, but, but I am an Eric Clapton fan because he has my name. Like if you share my name, like I'm, I'm so narcissistic that uh, if you share my name, maybe that's not narcissistic. Because I'm willing to share my name, because I like people more if they have my name, does that make me more narcissistic or less? Because I'm willing to share the name and like share the glory. Maybe it, maybe it's both. Maybe this is, I think this is a Zen koan. I think I just came up with, came up with a Zen koan. Where if you, if somebody has your name and you like them more for it, does that make you more narcissistic or less narcissistic? Because you'd think if you were a true narcissist, you'd be like, this is my name. I'd prefer it to be unique to me because there's nobody better than me. But then again, it's like by liking somebody for having your name, it's almost like liking yourself because you're seeing yourself in them. I don't know. It's a Zen koan, which means it doesn't have an answer. It's designed to break your brain and help you achieve, achieve Satori. But no, I, I was just cracking up because this has got to stop. But then on top of that, I decided, like I've mentioned before, like, like I've made a decision recently to look at the comments more, which is what they say not to do. Like it's one of those, I don't know, millennial or Zomer slogans, like don't look at the comments. And uh, I, I say, look at the comments. I'm telling you right now, like if you do it without, cause I mean, like think about how silly it is that like, and this shows you how sensitive we are as, as beings. Like this shows you how porous we are. It shows you how things seep into us. Where if you look at negative comments, there's a good chance you will be emotionally affected by that. Which is why people say don't look at the comments. Even though the comments have nothing to do with you. The comments have zero to do with you. But if you look at them and you don't agree or the comments as they often are are particularly hostile you're emotionally affected. But if you train yourself to not be that way, if you train yourself to just objectively take things in and you don't want to spend all your time doing it, do you want to be, do you want one of your hobbies to be reading the comments on the internet? No, you don't want that to be your hobby. But I think just as a, like a little, like a fun little exercise, detach yourself from whatever reaction you're going to have, whether you agree or disagree, and just occasionally look at the comments occasionally look at the comments. It's not, I'm going to revise my own slogan, which is not look at the comments. It's occasionally look at the comments. But I was looking at Eric Clapton and it's just, 
like the first response is, I wish I, I wish I could get back all the money I've ever spent on an Eric Clapton concert tickets. It, sorry. I wish I could get back all the money I've ever spent on Eric Clapton concert tickets and donate it to help more people get vaxxed with an angry face. And then another guy said, I, I feel the same way. I, I've seen him three times in concert and he used to be my favorite artist ever. I can't say that now. So you have two people who love Eric Clapton's music. This first person spent a lot of money, all the money I've ever spent on Eric Clapton concert tickets. How much money have you spent on Eric Clapton concert tickets? Like I know he's a big artist and he probably draws like a, a decent price if you want to get if you want to get good seats to the Eric Clapton concert. But how many times have you seen him? Would your donation be a significant sum? I I just realized I've reached the point like I've reached the point now where I'm just reading internet comments and, and offering my commentary. I think this makes me officially modern. I think I've officially caught up with the times because isn't that what everybody does? Isn't that what all these other podcasts have been doing for all these years? Like they just read off of Wikipedia and they just read comments and like respond to people's comments. You know, it seems like I'm finally caught up with everybody else. Finally caught up. But anyway, I just I just couldn't resist because it's it's I just love that. I love that Eric Clapton, because I mean, it's so silly and dorky. It's so silly and dorky, S and D, S D, that Eric Clapton wrote a song called This Has Gotta Stop. But it's probably the most honest thing he's written in years. And it's not a dig at Eric Clapton. I just have to imagine like a, a guy like that who has just been making music for so long. Like he's probably gone through some years where he's, you know, if not phoning it in, just not completely feeling it. He's probably really feeling this has got to stop. Especially because that it now he's losing fans over it. People are making him out to be a villain. And then there's even comments. I, I, I'm sorry to read so many comments. I, I promise not to, to make a habit of this, but it's a rare, it's Friday night. You know, this is what we do. Um, and then like another guy is like pointing out the fact that Eric Clapton used to have a drug problem. And he's, he's pointing out that, oh, so all those years where you put drugs in your body. You know, he's, he's like calling him a hypocrite. He's like saying, oh, so you won't you won't get vaccinated, but you were willing to put drugs in your body all those years. And he's sober now. You know, Eric Clapton, he's been sober a long time. I know that much about him. He's like me. Um, but uh, it just amazes me that like someone even feels the need to just be like, well, you like like to think that that's even you know the, just I love when someone thinks that they've found that right thread of logic. I think that might be like me at my most perverse is when I see some guy, and it's usually a guy, because women don't really feel the need to finesse it that much. But like a man, he feels the need to use he he feels the need to use logic. Well, he'll, he'll really break it down. You know, the scientific method informs all of his thinking. And then the most that he can come up with is, you used to have a drug addiction, and now you're anti-vaccine. That doesn't make sense. I love that good old-fashioned logic. I love those facts, the facts and logic that say, you used to shoot up heroin, 
So you're a hypocrite for not wanting to get the vaccine. Oh, you really, oh man, that's a good one. And, uh, and then it's like, you have people evaluating his, his musical ability. Like people are like, he's, he stole this, he stole this riff to this song from this artist. I'm actually reading this. Like someone's trying to say that because Eric Clapton doesn't want to get the vaccine and doesn't believe in lockdown, you have comments and they're saying, they're talking about how he stole a piano part from another song. You have somebody saying he's overrated. They saw him play. And they realized they saw him in the 1980s and they realized he was overrated then. But he's, and they said he's not as good as Stevie Ray Vaughan. I always love the comparing of jewels. I always love the, the great comparing of jewels, which in this case is Eric Clapton. The, the Eric Clapton jewel is overrated, while the Stevie Ray Vaughan jewel is the best. I always love the, the great comparison between jewels. See, I didn't know that Stevie Ray Vaughan and Eric Clapton were competing for the same chair in this great game of musical chairs. I didn't know that we had to decide between Eric Clapton and Stevie Ray Vaughan. G guess what? I don't like either one of them. Musically, I don't like the blues. I like it when Danzig plays the blues. I don't like that kind of blues. I don't like the Eric Clapton blues. I don't like the blues rock of Stevie Ray Vaughan. This guy seems to think, though, that I you should choose between them. You should choose between the guy who doesn't believe in vaccines and the dead guy. Because you can't... You gotta, you gotta, have, you gotta give your take. A lot of criticism of his music. But see, this is exact... Oh, man, this is perfect. I love it when, when a, an idea just makes itself uh, known. You know, I was just talking about how like people feel the need to say that Hitler's art sucked because Hitler sucked. Hitler was a bad guy, so his art has you have to say that it sucks. You can't be objective about Hitler's art, even though Hitler's art had played no direct res had no direct role in the Final Solution or anything else Hitler did during World War II. You got to say his art sucked. Because that's what we do as, as good people. We say that Hitler's art sucks. They're doing exactly this about Eric Clapton. They're saying all these responses are about his music sucking and being overrated and stolen. And it's, it's, it's because he said he doesn't believe in the vaccine or lockdown. So because Eric Clapton has now revealed to himself as Coroni Vi Hitler... you got to criticize his music. All these people who... And if they met him, I'm sure they would fawn all over him. All these people, and all these people, like, they claim to have been former fans, which is really funny to me. That's really funny to me that, like, these people are like, I wish I hadn't spent all that money on concert tickets over the years. I saw him in the 80s, and that, that opened my eyes to the fact that he's, he's no Stevie Ray Vaughan. <laughs> uh, you know, what's so funny about that is just that these are all former fans. Like, it's one thing if you're that guy who was never an Eric Clapton fan, and your, you know, your edgy take is, he sucks. That's pretty much me. Like, I was never an Eric Clapton fan, and so therefore I, I don't like Eric Clapton. But it's funny that all of these people are former fans who seemingly hate him now that he's, uh, he's not towing the Coronavi line. You have a few people who agree, but they're not very popular. You have a few people who support Mr. Clapton. I mean, some people have a sense of humor. 
You know, some people do have a sense of humor, but some of these people, there's no sense of humor. They're just really angry. They hate Eric Clapton now, and they think his music sucks because Eric Clapton's music, you can only, it's only good if he's vaccinated and he's in his house locked down. You can only, Eric Clapton, man, I didn't know this, but those sweet blues licks you've been writing over the years, is that what he does? I, mean, I, I hope I'm right. I feel like he's he's a blues guitarist, right? See, I've never even paid that much attention. I know he did some some ballads and soft songs and stuff too, but um, doesn't really it doesn't make a difference because I I'm, I'm not claiming to be an Eric Clapton fan. Um, but I'll defend his right to not get vaccinated. And. Uh, yeah, but uh, anyway, it's just, I, I do love it, though, how it's like those sweet, sweet Eric Clapton guitar licks depend on his vaccination. But that's exactly, it's the perfect way, that's the perfect, like, follow-up to what I was saying about Hitler. That was that was the exact point I was trying to make about Hitler's art and other artists as well. You know, other people who people decide, like Morrissey, the misfits, Danzig, people who have come under fire for not having the right political viewpoints, and now you have to assess their music differently. You're told you're told that you should no longer like those artists because they made a, a comment in an interview. But it's this idea that we don't evaluate art based on what it is. We evaluate art based on how it fits into the narrative that we're following and then uh, this is the best one though here's an even better one somebody said good thing eric clapton is never in all caps uh, never is in all caps good thing eric clapton has never been on the right side of history because I think even a lot of the more uh, deranged leftists have let go of the right side of history thing. Whether it just got overused or um, they realized how absurd that idea is. As I've said before, if you want to see the right side of a history, go to a cemetery. Go around a cemetery and ask all of those names there about the right side of history. And the answer that you're going to get is the only right answer. The only right answer to whether or not somebody falls on the right side of history can be found by going to the cemetery and saying, hey, hey, dead people, do you know which way? I'm right here. I'm here in the middle of the cemetery. Which direction do I go in to get to the right side of history? All you're going to hear is at most the sound of cars driving by and maybe a little whistle of wind. And that's going to, that's your answer. That's the right side of history right there. So I, I'm just happy to see that. I haven't seen it. I think people have kind of figured out that's a, that's just the absurdity of that. I mean, even like Ben Shapiro, you know, you know, even these pundits, he wrote a book that I think makes fun of the right side of history. And that's all it takes. You know, all it takes is it's kind of like how the left is, they don't really call themselves woke anymore. A few years ago, they were a few years ago. The left was calling them woke, but now that like your grandparents know what woke means, you mainly hear it from the right, which is one reason why I, I, I try not to use it. 
I try not to use it because now it has just become the buzzword has been taken over by the right and they just kind of use it to throw barbs at the left, even though it just, I use it just because it's so that we all know what it means right right now. It's the word that refers to that whole movement. But anyway, you have seen them kind of abandon the right side of history. So I'm glad to see that Eric Clapton brought it out of somebody. Man, you know, Eric Clapton's never been on the right side of history. Maybe he, I don't know. I don't know if he's been controversial before. I don't even know too much about him. I don't know if Eric Clapton's been a source of controversy before or not. But something that, you know, comes to mind too with all this is just that, speaking of history, it's like our understanding of most history is so vague. Like, especially when you look back at early history, like we we speak with confidence about these ancient civilizations and even though there's always a, we always leave a little bit of room for doubt. I say we, but I'm I'm just talking about our species. But you know, archaeologists, anthropologists, people they 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 will leave a little room for doubt. But it's amazing like we think we know so much even then based on what we find. Like we find etchings and artifacts, maybe some written accounts if we're lucky. You know, with the earliest civilizations, you know, it, it's difficult, but um it's funny the confidence we have in that. We're so confident in our understanding of history. And even when we leave room for doubt, we still I still feel like we there there's a certain audacity to the way we talk about early history. And that's even beyond the idea that like, oh, you know, history is written by the victors, you know, which is true. You know, you can see that play out in your day-to-day life, that history is written by the winners, by the victors, the guys named Victor. But you think like how how much of our understanding of history comes from stereotypes, from propaganda, from caricatures, from fiction? Like when we discover some ancient story, you know, obviously some things scream fiction or mythology. But if something doesn't, if there's some story we find, some ancient text and it doesn't involve anything obviously supernatural, how can we be sure that's not fiction too? But that idea of, you know, basing history off of what might just be caricatures. You know, like etchings and artifacts and caricatures, you know, we're, we're, you know, I don't know how we can have any confidence in that. Because you can even see in the short term how people get a distorted view of history. Like I think about the idea of jocks, where a lot of people's under a lot of what people think jocks actually are in real life comes from movies, stereotypes, fictional depictions. And while all of those were based on a real phenomenon, like we know jocks were a certain type of person. We know some of them were prone to bullying and certain behavior. But you know, I didn't experience that. I didn't see any of that. When I was in school, all through school, you know, while jocks tended to be maybe more popular, I mean, they're athletic, there wasn't this like strict caste system where the jocks were messing with people, bullying people, harassing people. I know that happens, and but it's, it's people like people from my generation 
see jocks that way, even though I feel like that was probably a tiny minority. But they've seen so many movies. They've read so many comic books. It's in cartoons. It's everywhere. Like every single source of media that you've watched since the 1970s, at least, depicts jocks as these dominant bullies. How many hundreds of times do you see that growing up? Like, how many hundreds of times in fictional portrayals do you see these jock caricatures who are mean to the nerds? And how does that affect your view of them? And I've known people to even invent adversity. Like, and I mean, of course people do that. But there are people who I've, I've known that I grew up with who've invented stories of adversity And I wonder how many people perceive, like in their own brain, they lived in this fictional world where they were the nerd or they were the the alternative kid and they were singled out by the jocks. And while that may have happened to some kids, I just wonder how many people have sort of revised their own history to, to fit with that idea. And how much has our perception of our own lives been influenced by these fictional portrayals that we see in some cases, hundreds of times. I mean, think about this, like those Japanese greasers who had the, like the crazy big pompadours, those guys did that because they saw happy days or something. They saw happy days like once and they were like, we're going to be like the fawns, but even more over the top. They saw Greece and they were like, Oh, we're going to do that, but we're going to do it in this really over the top absurd way. I doubt those Japanese guys saw like hundreds and hundreds of, you know, fictional portrayals of greasers. They probably just saw like a few, probably just the famous ones. (coughs) And so what happens when you do see something hundreds of times? When you do see hundreds of portrayals of somebody portrayed a certain way. And I mean, and this is like, you know, one of the arguments about racial stereotypes as well, where, you know, and, and it's a fair one, actually. You know, for once, it's a fair one where when you only portray, like when somebody's only experience with a foreign culture is just through repeated stereotypes in the media, in fiction, that is going to color their view of them. But it's not limited to racial stereotypes. It also includes, you know, just the people around you. If just normal, everyday people are depicted as caricatures or stereotypes more often than not. And I'm not saying they should even stop doing it. I'm not even saying it's totally wrong. I think it's kind of inevitable. How do you avoid it? Because certain people are archetypes. But it's weird because at some point, like what we would consider kind of like the traditional hero figure. Like jocks are athletic. They're thought of sometimes as good looking. They get the girl. And if you take that out of like a, a, a sports school sort of story <coughs> and put that character <coughs> in a fantasy, got something in my throat here. <coughs> but if you were to take if you were to take like the high school quarterback from a show and put him in a fantasy show, like a, a middle ages fantasy, <coughs> this is gonna be a coughing show probably a sign to cut it short, but if you place that jock as like a warrior type character in a fantasy story, he's going to be the hero. But for some reason, we have a need to depict that sort of archetype, the idea of 
the dashing warrior. In modern America, we have a tendency to to depict him as having a very dark side. He's either a rapist or he's a bully. So that's kind of an interesting twist. And it's not surprising with that in mind that when we have that sort of archetype, like the archetype of the dashing warrior, when he's depicted as a bad guy, you know, and then the nerd is the underdog and the good guy, it's not surprising that culture started to mirror that when they saw that over and over again. I mean, when was the last story outside of maybe superhero movies where the guy who's just good at life is the good guy? Like we got so into anti-heroes and underdogs and like, you know, the little guy coming out on top that we just repeated that over and over again. And eventually people are like, oh, I've got to be like the little guy. Whereas people used to look at the hero and the warrior and he was the ideal. That character was central in all of the old stories. I mean, in the Bible and the New Testament kind of turned that up on its head. You know, the Old Testament has those those sort of warrior kings. They're celebrated, but then Christ turns that upside down, which is why the Bible was so revolutionary. Because this idea that Jesus is the hero, but he's not a warrior. And he's probably capable. I mean, he's a young man. He's an able-bodied man. So Jesus probably could have picked up the sword, but he didn't. And he found another way to be a hero which is one reason why the New Testament is so revolutionary. Not that I'm sure there were other stories that went outside of the classic hero myth, but still it is pretty amazing to think about that, that that told such a diff. It, it told a story with a much different type of heroism. And, uh, but we have gradually kind of gotten away completely from the archetype of the hero warrior, good guy, and we've started to tell these stories of anti-heroes and underdogs. And then everybody got convinced. You see where the public saw that story play out so many times that they got convinced that they need to act like the underdog too, even when they're not. Even when they're not an actual underdog, there's this idea that you need to frame the story that way. You need to add this sense of drama because people don't like the stories that say, at least now, they don't like the stories that say his life was perfect and he did all the best things and he got the girl and he killed the dragon and yeah, this, this dude has no flaws. <laughs> people didn't, they don't really like that story as much anymore. But it's, I, I think that'll be, people will want that again. I think at some point people will want the story where it's just the the Superman who's good at everything and saves the day and gets the woman. I think at some point people are going to want that again. Maybe they want it. Maybe they're already getting it. Maybe I'm just not aware of the different th stories people are paying attention to. But yeah, just the, what I was getting at though is just the, you know, our view of history is that as well, but even worse. Like if we kind of revise you know, we we engage in this revisionism of our own lives where we see something in the media or in movies or in TV so much that we almost think that our own childhood was that way or our own experiences were that way. We look back on it and we're like, oh, yeah. I mean, it's I think a version of that, actually, to tie this into a recent episode 
is the Nirvana baby suing Nirvana for sexual exploitation. And I found out more information about that after I talked about it on here, where he even has Nevermind written in script across his chest. And he's done recreations of it. And he even said, I guess he's repeatedly asked magazines to do a recreation of it with him naked now. So he's been trying to exploit himself for years. Like, he loves the fact that he was naked on the cover of that album. He has, a, he has the, the name of the album tattooed on his chest. He's, he asked to recreate that photo naked. Like, you know, come on, man. Uh, but it, I, I do think as, as an act of art, as an act of art, I think it is great that the Nirvana baby is suing Nirvana for sexual exploitation. But you can see where that's another example where it's like he's revised his own life to where now that sexual exploitation is on everyone's minds all the time. And, you know, it ranges from actual abuse, actual sexual abuse to, oh, one time he made a joke about my skirt. To, oh, Nirvana used me as a naked baby on their cover and they sexually exploited to me, exploited me. You can see where like the language and the ideas of the time colored the past. And because this Nirvana baby, I mean, maybe it's just, maybe it's just an extremely cynical situation. He doesn't believe he was sexually exploited at all. And he's just thinking, hey, I really need money. Let me see if I can get some money from the Kirk Corbrain estate. Maybe that's all he's thinking. But it wouldn't surprise me if all of this talk about sexual exploitation and these very wide definitions as to what that is and what it means, it wouldn't surprise me at all if he kind of, he got stoned one night and he looked back and he was like, you know what? Maybe I was sexually exploited. You know what? Maybe I was sexually exploited. You know, maybe he said that to himself and he believes it. But it's like we can't even trust our own memory of our own past, even when we have evidence of it. So how can we trust anybody's interpretation of history? Obviously, we have to try, and I'm, I'm very fascinated by history. I'm into history, so we got to take what we can get. But I don't live with the illusion that we figure anything out or we know how it actually was. And I do believe that we are responding largely to caricatures of those times. And there are so many just different dynamics. There are so many things that, that were going on interpersonally and socially that we will never know about. Think about things that happened in your life. Think about weird little, think about the social politics of your life. Like think of think of trying to explain to somebody two thousand years from now. Think about trying to explain to them that the Nirvana baby is suing Nirvana thirty years later for sexual exploitation 
after he's already exploited his identity as the Nirvana baby for years and even made an attempt to pose naked and recreate it. Like, like think of trying to explain the nuances of that, let alone the entire situation. Like, think about trying to explain to them, like, what an album is, what a band is. They would understand music, but think about trying to explain to somebody in a, for that matter, 2,000 years ago or even 100 years from now. It could even be more recent, 50 years Like, imagine in the 1950s when Elvis was getting in trouble for shaking his hips. Imagine grabbing the mic and going, you know what? In 60, 70 years, no, well, what? In, the, in, in 35 years, a band, a rock and roll band will release an album. They'll all have long hair and be wearing flannel, and they'll release an album with a naked baby with his dicky on the cover and he's chasing a dollar bill. So like you think that Elvis is bad wearing a suit and shaking his hips a little bit, but there's going to, people are going to be releasing albums with naked babies showing their penises and they'll get, they're going to be chasing dollar bills. And then 30 years after that, that baby's going to, to, uh, file a lawsuit against that band. Like imagine trying to explain that to rock and roll fans in the fifties. It would sound completely insane. It would sound like the kind of thing a schizophrenic person would say to you today about something. You know, you, that would sound schizophrenic. Oh, hey, oh, oh, did you get the new Elvis LP? Did you get the new Elvis 45? You know, someday that this is going to be on a, a much smaller disc and half of it's going to be silver. And it's going to have a cover with a booklet it comes in a plastic case, and instead of putting pictures of the band wearing suits, it's going to be a picture of a naked baby showing his penis, and he's getting fished. There's a dollar on a fishing pole, and the album's going to have songs about rape and, uh, you know, all kinds of things. <laughs> and then 30 years after that, the baby's going to sue them. I mean, just to somebody in the 1950s, that would sound so absurd. And it sounds absurd to me now. But then trying to explain that to somebody 100 years from now or 1,000 years from now, and it's just like, we're lucky if our caricatures and our exaggerations, we're lucky if the bold accents, whatever that is, whatever a bold accent is, sounded good. But we're lucky if the, the boldest elements of our, like, we're lucky if American Idol is something, you know, we're lucky if in a hundred years people can even figure out what American Idol is. You hear artists and musicians talk about, like, wanting their music and art to live on for posterity, and I just think, like, man, in 200 years, we're going to be really lucky if they even knew what American Idol is and understand what it was. You know, we're going to be lucky then, like, who cares about your band and your art and your poetry? Like, we're lucky if the biggest parts of today's culture are even remembered then. And they're going to look back, too, and they're going to say, like, 1950? Like, 1950 is going to seem identical to them with the year 2000. And, like, we look at that and we're like, no, but this, 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 and this changed. But then what? You look back at, like... Would you be able to tell me, I mean, maybe a real history buff would, but like, would you be able to tell me what the difference was in a given country between the year 1000 AD and 1050 AD? 
Like, would you actually be able to break it down for me? I mean, maybe they were more similar then because history used to be slower. Like time apparently used to be slower. Like change, you know, this, as the snake swallows more of its own tail, time speeds up, technology speeds up. So maybe the year 1000 AD and 1050 AD were more similar than 1950 and the year 2000. Probably, actually. But still, it's like it's those kinds of details. When you when you look back, it's like a 50 year time difference in history is nothing. And understanding what the differences even were are, are difficult in most cases, unless there was some major event that marked it. But yeah, just it's something to consider. And it's like, you know, so it's like the more exaggerated you make something, it seems like the more likely it is to survive long term. But it's also going to be a less realistic depiction of how things actually were. Because, like, think about somebody watching a documentary. Like, you think about, like, some of the documentaries, like, ever since, like, document, ever since, like, this is, you know, I've talked before, before about how, like, this documentary industry formed and, like, doc, what I would call documentary culture, where documentaries started to get very narrative heavy. And I've tried to, I don't know exactly when that was. I'd say Bowling for Columbine did that politically. Bowling for Columbine seemed to mark, at least to me, the idea of like political documentaries entering the mainstream. But I don't know that that was the start of this like heavily edited, narrative-heavy documentary culture that we have now where, you know, it might as well be fiction, it feels like, but... Like, let's even just go with a reality show. Like, somebody watching a reality show from 2010 in the year 2100, that might as well be how things really were when we were alive. That's what I mean by caricatures. That's what I mean by exaggeration. And that's what people have trouble with with reality TV show. Because, you know, there's those geniuses out there, those genies who they made that amazing point for so many years. You know, reality TV isn't real. You know, it's fake, right? And I mean, the, the funny thing is, though, is people, they want to believe. And they did watch reality TV and like allow themselves to believe it's real. But if you, if you actually pay attention to human body language and the way people really talk, if you're an actual human being aware of your surroundings, it should have been very obvious when you watched reality TV that it was edited, maybe even scripted, or things were set up. It should have been obvious that that wasn't the way human beings naturally interact. But it also, to me, it was just, it's like, did you know it's not real? It's just so funny to me that like there are people who thought that that was their bold take. Oh, how'd you figure that out? And then even funnier when people would be like, I, I heard an interview with a guy who used to write for reality TV, and he says it's all fake. Oh, you you really, you needed the insider to, to let you know, huh? You needed the insider to, to give you the scoop that reality TV ain't completely real. But it's a caricature, and I mean, that's how I saw it. Like, out of all the things that I, I had to watch with, like, a girlfriend or, or you know, situations like that, I never really minded reality TV. I wasn't one of those guys. I, you know, there was some reality TV. I, like, I liked Laguna Beach. That was me. 
Laguna Beach was me watching that on my own. Nobody forced me to watch that. I loved the first two seasons of Laguna Beach. Uh, what else? Didn't like The Hills. I only saw a few episodes. Uh, season three of Laguna Beach sucked. The Hills sucked. First two seasons of Laguna Beach, great reality TV. But, uh... You know, the, you have to view it as caricatures. It was like people weren't ready for reality yet. You know, people weren't ready for just pure reality, which they're getting a lot more of through the internet. Although that reality is becoming more fictionalized now too, where people aren't acting like real people. But for a little window of time, they were. And you still get some of that. But, you know, people weren't ready for pure reality TV because you think about like we've been on a trajectory where entertainment gets more and more like reality, like even a sitcom, like think about a sitcom where that's more realistic than a stage production. That's more realistic than early movies. It's not real, like obviously a sitcom is, is on a stage and there's an audience and they're playing they're acting they're they're doing making goofy scripted jokes it's a it's a fictional portrayal of real life but sitcoms you were often attempting to show people in real situations they weren't fantasy you know they were people in real situations families you know think about like i love lucy dick van dyke all these nick at night shows that i grew up watching happy days later you know, just all of them, pretty much all of them were all about real life, but told in a funny, goofy way. But they were much more like real life than anything that had come before. They were more like real life than a than theater, than dance. And nothing like that had existed before. It was unique to TV, even though it was a form of theater, even though it was a stage production. They were able to do things that they hadn't been able to do on a physical stage or in earlier movies. So it was more like reality. And then when sitcoms kind of, you know, were dying out, when it, when it was clear that the sitcom, the peak, when it basically when it was clear that sitcoms had peaked, that's when you saw reality TV emerge. And reality TV is more like reality than sitcoms were. But it's still not reality. But it's like, it's almost as if people weren't ready just to watch real people on TV. So it's like, here's something that is more real than a sitcom, but it's basically a hybrid between a sitcom and a documentary. So that's what reality TV is. And so it's a caricature. Every single reality TV show I ever saw was a caricature of real people. And they played that up. The people on them played that up. Ozzy Osbourne acted like a caricature of Ozzy Osbourne. His family acted like caricatures of themselves. If you act like a caricature enough, you might kind of become it. But still, that's what that show was. It's like, was that the real Ozzy? You know, I'm, sh I'm sure a, a big part of it. But he, he also knew he was on camera. I mean, despite the way he acts, Ozzy's a lot sharper than he, he seems. You know, he really is. And his wife is, you know, among the most shrewd rock and roll wives there ever were. You know, she's, she's among the most shrewd people I feel like ever to exist in that business. 
And not in a bad way. I just mean she she made some really effective decisions for herself. In addition to for Ozzy and the family and everything. Like that that is a shrewd family. To think that Ozzy was just wandering around totally clueless. And maybe he was. Maybe it was all her. Either way, he did exactly what people wanted. People loved him on that show. I barely even saw it. I only saw it a couple times, but I got it right away. I understood, like, even though I only saw the Osbournes a couple times, I understood right away what they were doing. And my thought wasn't, oh, this is fake. It was, oh, this is a caricature of a family. This is a caricature of Ozzy Osbourne's family. And obviously it was popular. Ozzy-osly. Ozzy Osbourne-osly. Obviously it was... uh, and a, a very well done show at, at what it was, because people people bought merch, <laughs> you know, like there were Osborne's lunchboxes. I re- I went to some store and they were selling like Osborne's lunchboxes for kids. You would go to Walmart and they'd be selling like an Osborne shirt, not an Ozzy Osborne band shirt, but like an Osborne show T shirt. They sold merch. They sold, they sold a lot of Duck Dynasty merch, you know, talking about reality TV. Like, the fact that reality TV was able to be converted into, like, physical merchandise, like hats and trinkets and shirts, posters. There was probably somebody with an Osborne's poster in their house. They loved the show that much. So it was really good at what it did, and I honestly found it more enjoyable than sitcoms. Like, I watched some of the Real Housewives Atlanta. My girlfriend watched all that stuff at the time, and I, I, I watched a bunch of Real Housewives Atlanta. I found it genuinely enjoyable. It's ridiculous. But I'm also not one of these guys. It's like it's not like I'm revealing my reality TV side here. You know, I'm not some reality TV freak. I'm just saying that, like, whenever I've seen that stuff, I found it preferable to the sitcoms that were on at the time. And it was the next step over from them. And the next step was just people themselves producing material on the internet. It was people making their own YouTube shows. It was people actually having the means of production. But we couldn't jump straight from sitcoms to that. We couldn't go straight from sitcoms to YouTube channels made by everyday people. We had to go to reality TV. We had to bridge that gap. And then people were on YouTube and making their own podcasts, their own YouTube shows, just producing their own material, some of it very raw. But what's interesting is you can see where like now so many podcasts, so many YouTube shows, they might as well be late night TV talk shows. Like what made them charming was that they didn't have to be that. Like it used to be where you'd watch sometimes a somewhat famous person or even a celebrity who had a show and the production value would be very poor. Because it was just something they were putting together in their house. And that was before you could actually, you couldn't hire a podcast producer. So you'd just hire some, like some of them, they would just hire some kid who probably got his audio production degree from the Art Institute. And he had no idea what he was doing. And so some of those early podcasts, it's like the producer, the quote unquote producer, was not a professional 
podcast producer because nobody was. Nobody had done that before. He was just some kid who could kind of hook some wires up and get this thing edited and, and online. And then over time, though, these it became more professional. And then now pretty much what you have is someone sitting at a desk while another person sits in a chair and they talk into professional quality microphones while a professional quality camera is on them and they have a team of people operating it. And so it's really just become a DIY Jay Leno or Conan O'Brien. I mean, it's really not that different from that, which is honestly to its detriment in my opinion. I like the rawness. I think the rawness added to it. I don't think they, I think what made podcast, I think what made the podcast phenomenon what it was, and obviously it's still going. I think it already peaked, right? It's, I think, I think they'll be around. I don't don't think podcasts will disappear, but I think it already peaked. Uh, But just that they, they kind of followed this pattern where it's like what made them charming was the rawness, even from famous people. And now we're kind of seeing where they've just fallen into being basically normal TV shows, normal talk TV. Whatever, it's okay. It's okay. Um, um, but uh, yeah, I, I don't know. It's it's uh, I don't I don't know that people were completely ready for that though. I don't know that people were totally ready to just see their peers as celebrities and entertainers quite yet. So we needed reality TV as that buffer, as that bridge. And reality TV might very well be what that era is remembered by. When people look back in the distant future, if they're able to, those caricatures of real life might be what how they think things really were. And we might think, oh my God, they're not going to know how it really was. But you never really do. You never know how it really was during any given time in which you weren't alive. Because it turns out you don't even remember how things were when you were alive. Like when people were all nostalgic about the 90s, you know, these things tend to go in 20-year intervals. So like... During the 2010s, everybody was ultra-nostalgic about the 90s. And how much of that was even their real memory? Like, yeah, you remember shows and video games and doing things with your friends. But how much of your memory of your own life is just those bold outlines and caricatures? You know, how much of it is just that? And then when you see other things, you kind of fill in the gap. You kind of revise your own history. And then, I mean, now what we're seeing, I'm seeing a lot of people now talking about the, the 2000s. Because, again, these things go in 20-year gaps where, you know, in the 2010s, people couldn't, people wanted to be so far away from the, from the first decade of the 2000s. In the 2010s, people were just so deeply embarrassed by the 2000s. But now that enough time has passed, we're seeing where people are revisiting that. I saw somebody wrote something recently where they were defending like the 2005 2007 period people get very specific but a woman who's writing she's a she's a woman who who does some writing i really like and she uh like she's done some writing about 
what is it like like the some some of the earlier trends in the internet that have been overlooked and kind of how they connect to what's going on now like earlier services that people were using like she's done a good job connecting those dots because since a lot of people didn't really pay attention to those early internet years a lot has been lost unless you were there unless you were participating in some of that and by early internet years i don't mean like super early i'm just saying like some of the early online communication before most normal average people were on the internet all the time when they were still so scared that an audio file was going to steal their kid the second they logged in you know there was other stuff going on this girl her name was like Catherine d i believe is her name and She's written some stuff I like, but she had said something about uh, like she was kind of defending the culture from 2005 to 2007. And I thought that was funny. Because during the 2010s. It wasn't uncommon to hear people like in terms of cultural critique, it wasn't that uncommon for people to be extremely harsh on that period, the mid 2000s. And so now people are seeing it through a different lens. Now they're able to see it, you know, and they're like, time has passed. They're less embarrassed about who they were then. They're less embarrassed about what was going on at the time. And they can look back and kind of be like, okay, because one of the, one of the arguments that I've heard over and over again, as far as cultural criticism goes, is that there was no culture circa 2005. That culture basically died. What I've heard is like culture basically died in 2005. I do believe that that marked the beginning of this great cultural stagnation where we have an extremely difficult time creating anything new. We just hybridize and create novelties, hybridized with other novelties. I do stand, you know, I, I will stand on that. I do believe that started happening because I, I felt that way at the time and I feel that way now. But I am interested in, in people kind of defending that period now. There are more and more people who I think are going to – and and this woman, she – you know, I imagine she's around my age. But I, I like I, – I guess I like the, the perspective she's coming from. And there will be some revisionism. You know, there will be some revisionism where people will look back. Like what people will remember about the 2000s might not be how it actually was like they're going to look back even at their own experience then and they might just see the big the thick strokes they're going to see the big bold thick strokes this is starting to get erotic they're going to see that they're going to see the exaggerated aspects they're going to see the caricatures they're going to see the bigger picture And when people start doing that, they start integrating that back into the present. That's the interesting thing that happens is it used to be in 20-year intervals, but things are so chaotic. There are so many hybridized novelties. The internet has given us access to all culture that came before now, and it gives us all culture that is happening. The internet gives us access to all culture that is happening right now and all culture that has happened throughout history. And at this point, very little has slipped through the net through Indra's net. So as a result, people, the whole process of us looking back at culture 20 years previous and reintegrating it, that's been created, that, that's been uh, turned that much more mutant, multifaceted, what's another M word I can use here? 
it's it's just it's it's turned into this like multifaceted mutant culture where we're pulling from all eras we're pulling from all aspects of the present it's not just that we can pull from the the past more readily and in, including the more recent past and and time periods that otherwise seem recent actually seem farther away because things are happening more rapidly so like 5 years ago now probably feels more like 15 years ago in the past because so much has changed so rapidly and we're taking in so much information all the time. It's kind of like if you bring up something from six months ago now, people are like, what? It feels like it was 10 years ago. Like even if, if somebody were to bring up like the January 6th thing at the Capitol right now, doesn't that almost feel like it was 10 years ago? <laughs> uh And so that's where we're dealing with that. But I do think that that natural process of the 20 year intervals and like reintegrating the past, I do think that's still playing out. It's just playing out in a much more chaotic and high speed environment. And people are able to do more with all of this information, with all of this data, with all of these options, because it's not just that we have more access to the past. It's that we have more access to the present right now, which is why you see more hybridization. Like someone can log into their social media or account and see a heavy metal aesthetic and a rap aesthetic and be like, I'm going to combine those into a new streetwear outfit. And it's pretty much what people like Kanye West do. He pretty much just looks at what's going on across a spectrum of culture and subculture. And he just says, like, I like that. I like that. And he hires people to, like, make streetwear out of it. That's, I mean, you know, a Kanye, a Kanye West fan would probably tell me, like, there's so much more to it. Oh, he, there's so much more to what he does. Oh, my God. You don't, you don't even understand him. You, you don't even understand Kanye. Well, I can take one look at the streetwear that he produces, which I don't see very often, but it, we live in a world where you can't avoid it. You, you inevitably end up seeing Kanye West's streetwear outfits. And they're almost always, it's like, oh, he took like some, he, he saw like, like some anime post on Twitter. He saw somebody wearing like a heavy metal shirt, a black metal shirt. And he's he's already a hip hop guy who's who's like already engaged in the latest streetwear and hip hop fashion, and he is coming up with his own ideas all the time. And he just kind of throws them together into a pot and blows people's minds. And you know, I, I see him like I, I I don't talk about him. I have nothing to say about him. I do think he's a necessary figure in our world today. That's all. That's all I'm going to say is that I think that Kanye is a necessary figure in our world today. I like that he's oppositionally defiant. I like that he's chaotic and unruly. And I think he's served a very necessary purpose in our culture. I'll say that. That said, I have no interest in what he does. I'm not particularly interested. Um, but just that, that sort of streetwear idea. Streetwear, I think, is, is... I didn't even know that's what it was called. And like... It's probably like a year or two ago, two years ago, I was talking to Miles and he's like, I was talking about that fashion for some reason. And he was like, oh yeah, that's streetwear. And I, was, I heard the term streetwear and it just clicked. I was like, oh yeah, 
The reason why I've heard that term everywhere is because it's that thing that I see everywhere. <laughs> Turns out that term that everybody's using all the time refers to a thing that you see all the time. But ever since then, I want to use the, I, I want to throw the term streetwear around. Like now I'm like an old man who learned something new and I'm just like streetwear. Like somebody's wearing something that's obviously not streetwear and I'm like, hey, look at that streetwear. Oh, that's some really nice streetwear you're wearing, Johnny. Oh, Johnny came in and he's, 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 he's got this streetwear outfit and somebody's like, that's not streetwear. I'm like, huh? You, uh, you said you like streetwear? Me too. I like streetwear. But ever since I learned streetwear, because the reason I'm so happy I learned the term streetwear is because it's it's like the perfect embodiment of what I'm talking about, that like hybrid. It's pure novelty. It's pure hybrid. It's the fashion embodiment of what I'm talking about when I'm when I'm saying that we exist in a culture that's made up of hybrids of novelties that turn into other mutant hybrids, but they never actually turn into something truly new. They never actually turn into something whole. You can always see the seams. You can always see the stitching. You can always see the crazy glue holding them together. And that's why I haven't quite accepted the last 15 to 20 years, 15 years. I haven't quite accepted the, the cultural significance, but that is significant in and of itself. You always hear, like, you'll hear, if you, if you read about history, you'll always hear about, like, the, the nothing years. I'm trying to think, there's, there's a specific phrase I'm looking for here. The, uh, it's like the, the empty years. But usually, major events are going on alongside that, and that's been the interesting thing about like it feels like culture has been stagnating and just spinning in on itself swallowing its own tail hybridizing breaking apart rehybridizing it feels like that's what culture has been doing it's been this culture of novelty for the the last 15 years but that said the actual culture like not just the decorations of our culture not just you know when you get rid of the music and the art and the fashion and everything and you look at the actual cultural shifts They've been the most significant in my lifetime. Like in the last 15 years, the dramatic changes, like with the internet becoming more popular, with what we've seen politically, with what's going on just everywhere. So it's amazing that some of the most significant changes and events have happened, but that's not really reflected in media and entertainment and art those have kind of stagnated and, and become more boring. And some of that might just be me, but those have kind of stagnated and become more boring as these much more dramatic events are happening in real life. So I don't know, it's just, that's an interesting dynamic in and of itself. But I brought up uh, just, I'm starting to now see some writing about, people are starting to look at the 2000s now through a different lens. And I'm very curious what they will see. And I'm open to any interpretation. I'm open to any interpretation, good or bad, of that period. Because good things were going on. Good things were happening. There always are. You know, it's not that good things weren't happening at all. But And the period that I'm going to be particularly interested in, because I think two th the year 2000 to 2005, there's not much mystery there for me. 
I don't think that period is too mysterious. You know, it was sort of the backwash of the 90s. And everybody was trying to be um, modern. Like I've, I've talked about how that's the period where every game show had somebody wearing like a metallic blue suit. The host always had like a metallic futuristic looking suit and tie. The sets were always futuristic and silver and... You know, there was this kind of cold, like blue, like think about the set for Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, which of course is from the 90s. But the 90s were sort of, that's the thing too, though, is like the 90s were sort of anticipating the millennium. So in the 90s, you started to see this sort of millennium aesthetic, which was like the Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, Regis Philbin wearing a dark blue metallic suit, this cold metallic set with glowing blue lights. That show, uh, You Are the Weakest Link, for the host of that show, she she wore this kind of pseudo S&M outfit and it had this futuristic set. You saw that sort of aesthetic where it's like, we're in the millennium. We're in the millennium. And so everything's got to look millennial. Everything should look like it's in the future. And so the early 2000s were filled with that, which is really cute when you think about it. It's really cute. Like, this is me being a virgin alien monk looking down at the year 2001. I'm looking down from my UFO, my UFO, and I'm saying it's really cute how all these people are making this big deal out about how the year 2000 marks the future. We're in the future now. And how to kind of commemorate that, we're going to make everything look the way we think futuristic things should look. Which means game show sets, instead of looking like Jeopardy, you know, and uh, I mean, Jeopardy was kind of futuristic. But just instead of having this classic look, instead of looking like classic game shows, we're going to make them look like a spaceship. That's cute. That's a very cute little phase for humanity, and I mean that. That is very cute. Like, looking down at humanity, at human beings from high up, if you were just to see them as kind of like little tiny people. It's like in Gulliver's Travels when he goes to the, the island of people who are tiny, and he's huge. Like, if you were looking down at those tiny people, and you were like, oh, to commemorate the millennium, they're making game show sets look like spaceships cute. I'd want those people as my pet. I want to put them in a tank. I want to put them in a, in a tank in my house and watch them host their little futuristic game shows. So that period kind of speaks for itself. But around 2005 is when people started to get over the fact that it was the new millennium. People were like, yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, we've, we've all seen the Matrix, okay? We've all seen the Matrix, okay? Everything, we're all used to like people wearing sunglasses and trench coats and, you know, we're all used to kind of pretending like we're in this slick, metallic new millennium. And that's when this kind of folkiness emerged. And I, I, I'm going to have to end this at some point. 
I just caught myself like opening up a whole new chapter. But that's when this kind of pseudo earthiness and folkiness emerged, which was clearly a response to all that metallic, futuristic aesthetic that was found in popular music, too. Like you think about new metal, you think about alternative rock at that time. It all kind of had this glossiness to it. It all kind of had something kind of futuristic and metallic. A lot of the artwork, like a lot of album artwork looked that way. And uh, so you can see around 2005, though, you started to see in pop culture, as well as the underground, this trend toward earthiness. That was when the new weird America phase kind of opened up, which I myself didn't really pay attention to. I had a good friend who wasn't into it, but he was observing it very closely because it kind of evolved out of things that he had paid attention to for years. And so he kind of broke it down for me and he would like... He would show me like Wire magazine because the thing is, is like, like I'm fascinated by this stuff. Like I studied sociology in school, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated by trends and I try not to condemn them. I just try to observe them. But we kind of watched this new weird America thing emerge and you started to see more mysticism, folkiness, you know, kind of a retro sixties and seventies vibe. And I was curious to see where it, it kind of fizzled out, like remnants of it still remain, but it fizzled out quicker than I thought it would. But you could see where it became popular and it, it kind of filtered into to popular music as well. Like I mentioned those friends of mine who ended up being in a famous band and they were kind of riding on that. Like they weren't they weren't going for the weird aspect, but they definitely were going for that sort of earthy, folky thing. And they got that way more so, you know, because before that they were kind of going for kind of a, a more poppy 1960s rock sort of sound. And, I, and they might have kept that up, but there was def around 2005, I remember them and I didn't pay super close attention to their music. You know, I kind of kept it at arm's length at that point. Just I was you know, living my own life and stuff. It just wasn't really relevant to me, but I did see where they like their aesthetic became very earthy and folky way more than it had been ever before. I mean, it really wasn't that way originally. So, and that's the zeitgeist. That's not necessarily people following trends. It's just the zeitgeist. Like we all inevitably get impacted by the zeitgeist and the zeitgeist of the late nineties and early two thousands was metallic decor. Like I've talked about on here, how during that period, no matter what town you lived in or visited, a new pizzeria had opened up that had metallic game show set futuristic decor. Like pizzerias were opening up in every town that were really sterile and bright and clean. Like they were the opposite of the classic checkered tablecloth pizzerias of old where you go in and it's like, oh, I feel like I'm in Italy. I feel like I'm in Italy. I feel like I'm in New York. You know, because that was what people used to want from pizzerias. Like, you used to want to go in and be like, I check a tablecloth, guy with a mustache, he doesn't wash his hands. I saw, the, I saw the pizzeria owner leave the bathroom and he didn't wash his hands and then he immediately stuck his hands in the dough. This place is authentic. You know, that's what people were looking for from pizzerias. But then around the late 90s, early 2000s, these pizzerias were popping up all over the place. And they had like these edgy new names. And they, you felt like you were walking into like a, a who wants to be a millionaire set. Like, it's like metallic tables, 
you know, it was just, and porn stores were like that too. I, I haven't spent much time at porn stores, but like all these, you know, I went to this porn store here in Olympia when I first moved here. I, I went with somebody. I didn't buy anything. I've never made a purchase at a porn store. And uh, yeah, I want to buy, yeah, I'll, I'll buy this $45 DVD. That sounds like a good plan. Oh, I'll, I'll buy a cat of nine tails because my girlfriend wants to pretend that she likes S&M this week. <laughs> um, but porn stores took on that aesthetic too. It didn't matter if it was a porn store or a pizzeria or a game show set. They all felt like they were going for this millennium aesthetic. And so you can see where, like, like the natural response to that, the zeitgeist, that even that was the zeitgeist then, and then the zeitgeist that followed that was like, we need to get back down to our roots. We need to get into the and and people were kind of going for this more. Everybody suddenly became like a a child of nature. Everybody, everybody kind of became a nature boy, and that's good. It's good for people. Sometimes, believe it or not, sometimes trends are good. And even if I don't like the aesthetic, even if I don't like the music. The fact that like people were getting closer to nature was not a bad thing, of course. But it was but you can see where so many things are a direct response to the previous zeitgeist. It's the pendulum swing, swinging back and forth. And I do believe that kind of pseudo folky earthy I, I feel like that vibe was 100% people counteracting the slick millennial modern aesthetic that had taken over the millennium aesthetic. I want to call it millennial, but that makes it sound like I'm talking about my generation. And then, but then that almost feels like the, the last real zeitgeist, you know, that almost feels like the end to me. Because it feels like by the end of the, the first decade of the 2000s, that kind of felt like things really slowed down. Meanwhile, they sped up faster than ever. That's sort of the, the, the um, I don't know, it's, it's sort of like counter, I don't know, how to, I don't know what to say. It's like information started to speed up. Like that was around the same time period that people started living on the internet. Like, that's when all these people got Facebook accounts. Like, I got a Facebook account in 2007. I got it because my girlfriend at the time had one and, like, was bugging me to get one. So I got one. I, I didn't, you know, I didn't really use it at the time. Uh, but then, like, between 2007 and 2009, that's when, like, everybody you ever knew started to add you on Facebook. That's when you suddenly became social media friends with your family for the first time. And between, let's say, 2007 and 2011, there was this huge, huge influx where not only did everybody you ever knew try to track you down on social media, but anytime you would meet somebody, they would add you. There was this new ritual of acquaintanceship and friendship where it's like you go to a party, the next day you get friend requests. And I'm not saying I got a ton, but still, there was this kind of, you could kind of expect it. And people were excited by it. People hadn't developed this hatred and resentment. And these and these platforms hadn't been just polluted by politics. Some alliteration there. Platforms polluted by politics. That hadn't quite happened yet. So between like 2007 and 2011, 
people were kind of like they were ecstatic about Facebook. It was this exciting new thing. You were reconnecting with like you were reconnecting with people you went to high school with who you might not have seen over the last four years. People who maybe you had been friends with, but you didn't maintain contact in college. And hey, you get to see each other. You get to see what each other is like. You got to get to see a picture, you know, all that. So it kind of created this this new hyper connection. And within that hyper connection of suddenly being connected, like first of all, being connected to all those people, but then people started to check that every day. All day. So people are getting a lot more information about each other during that time. And not just on social media, everywhere. You know, we see we're just the amount of information we started to get from each other, about each other, toward each other. The amount of connection we had intensified with many people we know. People we otherwise would have only seen in passing. Like, think about that. Like, a lot of the people that you would have become Facebook friends with or, or to this day are Facebook friends with, are people that you would only see once in a blue moon at a party. They're people that you would never call on. Like, like if you had met that person in 1997, you never would have called them on the phone and been like, hey, Johnny, let's hang out. Oh, dude, it was so great seeing you at uh, Sammy's Barbecue last weekend. I'm thinking we should just hang out. You would never do that. Like there's somebody, but you would see them at Sammy's Barbecue every year. And be like, Johnny, I'm glad you're here. And you talk to you talk to Johnny when you're at Sammy's barbecue. But you would never think like, I need to be connected to him all the time. I need to know everything he's thinking. I need, I need to see all of his photos. I need to have a, a, a nonstop window into Johnny's life because I see him once a year at a barbecue that my friend has. You would never, ever go there with it. But yet you're suddenly placed in a world where you're connected to that person. And if that person uses it every day and you use it every day, you have this window into somebody's life that you never would have had into their subconscious. That's insane. And so all of that is going on. New ideas and culture start to kind of stagnate. It seems like we're seeing a lot more role play. You see a lot more people around that time period, around the late, let's say around 2008, 2009, and then for sure into the first few years of the 2010s, being a metal fan, I saw this especially, where all of a sudden a lot of people were pretending to be bands from the past. Like a band of young guys would start a new band around that time, and they were trying to be the bands from decades earlier. Like, we're going to start a death metal band, but we're going to try to be Carcass. We're going to try to be those bands. We're going to try to be Nihilist. We're going to try to be a band that only released demos in 1988. And we're going to try to look like them and act like them. Oh, we're going to try to be a crossover thrash band. Even though we're a bunch of 30-year-olds, we're going to dress and act like a crossover thrash band from 1985. And we're going to wear high-top sneakers and we're going to wear hats with the bill flipped up and, and denim vests and grow our hair out. You know, you see where like people started to heavily role play as bands that they liked and just basically create tribute bands and act like they were doing something new. You started to see that more and more around that time. So you started to see people just try to recreate the past. And you started to see people like create more hybrids and novelties out of that.
And then today, I don't even know what to make of it. I don't even know what to say about things today, but it seems like that's when that started to happen in at least much larger amounts than it had before. And of course, there are still original ideas and there are still good things, but it, it just, it, what, I, what I notice is that it seems like there are fewer and fewer original creative movements. It's not that there aren't individuals, it's not that there aren't original ideas coming from individuals, but if you look at the history of music, for example, there are movements. And there are time periods, like, it's like if you look at Florida death metal, where there is a time period in the late 80s and early 90s when a bunch of bands appeared, many of them from Florida, and they were all playing death metal. They all had the same influences, more or less. They all had unique characteristics. Yeah, to an outsider, they're all going to sound the same. They all have growled vocals, distorted guitar. They're all fast. But, you know, you, you could tell where they each had their own distinct identity. And they were a part of this scene or movement. And the fact that they were part of this movement made them all individually more powerful. And uh, I've seen less and less of that. You, you'll see people kind of try to, to manufacture it to be like, oh, yeah, like, like in metal, sometimes you'll see be, bands be like, oh, we're part of this like circle or group or, you know, we're part of this cult of bands where it's like a bunch of bands who have decided to form their own like faction. And that could be fun and cool and everything, but. You know, it's not necessarily, or, there are there are organic examples of that that are cool, but you can't fake it. You know, it's something you can't fake. It either has to be totally natural or not. You can't fake that kind of stuff. Like, you can't fake a movement. And I just, I see fewer and fewer movements. And the oversaturation too. I mean, oversaturation is another part of that. Like the number of people you meet who are musicians, the number of people who have Bandcamp pages, who release music at all times and at all times. They're releasing stuff at all times. Like new music coming out is not an event of any kind. It's just, it's almost, it's almost a, a you almost breathe a sigh of relief. You know, when music isn't coming out, because you're just like, thank God, thank God no new music is being thrown at the wall, hoping it'll stick. So there's this oversaturation and, you know, oversaturation means less distinction. And so I think all of these things have played a role in the stagnation and the oversaturation, the whatever other word you want to throw into the mix, but I personally watch this. And so I'll be curious, though, to see like what people sort out. I'll be curious to see what sticks because some things will inevitably stick. Like we have to choose some things from that era to define it. Like we are going to have to choose some music from a given time period that we consider the definitive music, the definitive movies, you know, and more and more of that feels forced on us. And maybe it always was, but more and more that feels forced on us. More and more it feels like people are just going through the motions. And it's easier to make music. You know, that's the other side. It's like the oversaturation comes in part because it's easier than ever to make it. Every single person, all you need is a computer. 
and a minor upgrade to your your microphone and you can pretty much do anything. So it's not surprising that there's more and more of it. But um you know, there, there are still zeitgeists in the culture, but then on top of that, everything is so hyper-politicized too. And that kind of seems to have taken precedent. And that should be obvious from everything I have talked about lately on episodes is that politics have taken precedent over art. Politics have taken precedent over expression. And when people do express themselves, when they do create, it's very difficult to separate it from politics. I mean, if you're into metal, you can see that people are constantly asking each other, like, what are this band's politics? Are they sketchy? They they like to use that word sketchy. Are they sketchy? What difference does it make to you? Are you interested in it? Are you interested in what they're doing? What if they're sketchy? What are you going to have to do? You have to. Are you going to throw salt over your shoulder? You have some sort of banishing ritual you have to do in order to listen to it or not listen to it. What do you have to do? Listen to it or don't listen to it. You know, but. You know, you see where, like, being a metal fan, I see that all the time where people... Because metal bands do, are, are far less likely to to line up with whatever the progressive politics are of the day. You tend to see people, now that progressive politics rule all culture, you have a much stronger chance of seeing people be like, is this band sketchy? Because God forbid I support something that's sketchy. God forbid I support something that's mysterious. Oh, oh no, if I don't completely understand this, if I don't completely understand who the people are who made this and know everything about them and what they believe, I don't know if I can listen to it. Sorry. I have to know what the beliefs are of every single band member, and I have to agree with them. Even if the band's music doesn't delve into any territory, you know, even even if the music and the and the subject matter of the lyrics, even if that's totally fine, you know, if one of the if if even if even the session bass player, if their live if their live session bass player read a book that I don't approve of, I don't know if I can listen to them anymore. Circling back to Eric Clapton, Eric Clapton's anti-vax anti-lockdown and people who are lifelong Eric Clapton fans are saying, I wish I could give all my, I wish I could give all the concert money that I spent on Eric Clapton tickets to a pro vaccination campaign. I wish I could take all the money that I gave to Eric Clapton. This is what this person said. I read it earlier. They said they wish they could give all the money they gave for Eric Clapton concert tickets and donate it to a campaign that will force people to get vaccinated. You freak. <laughs> you know, maybe that's a troll. I don't know. It's what we call, what we call doing a little trolling. I don't think so though. What I saw, like not all the, you know, I read, I read some of those comments earlier. Not all those people were trolls. I don't, I don't actually don't think any of them were. I have pretty good radar when it comes to that. I don't think any of those were what they call trolls. I think those were human beings. 
but it's hilarious to me because that's where we're at where it's just like if eric clapton's live piano player read a book i don't like about a controversial subject i i wish i could sell all my eric clapton cds I wish I could turn them into, I wish I, I wish I had a fireplace so that I could boin them. We're learning a lot about ourselves right now, guys. We are learning. This is the best time to learn. Trust me. This is the best time to learn about human beings. Just stay aware. Take care of yourself. Here's some self-help motivation. Take care of yourself. You know, eat right. Move around. You don't you don't have to do anything crazy. You don't have to buy into like some fitness fad. Just make sure you move around. Have some sort of activity you do to clear your mind. Doesn't have to be meditation. Just have something that you can do that makes you feel like it it clears your mind or helps you hit restart, kind of renews you. You know, have something like that. Find it. For some people, like I was talking to my friend uh Johanna, she was saying her job is like that. You know, her job is very repetitious. Like that that becomes her meditation that clears the mind. You know, and it, and it's like uh you know, you have something like that. Have something like that in your life that clears your mind a little bit whatever it is and you'll find people who will tell you what they do. But do all that, you know, and other than that, though, I mean, if, if you're interested in our species, which I can't imagine you're not, now is a great time to be paying attention. I don't ever remember being this interested in what people were doing. And I've always been interested in what people are doing. But if you can look at what people are saying, if you can see how people are acting without getting upset, it's okay to get mad. I mean, if you listen to the, the last few days of episodes, I've been yelling but it's okay to get mad, but just make sure you don't get hijacked by it and take and, and you know, take a step away. But it's just like that includes people in your own life. But listen to what they're actually saying. Listen to how people are actually communicating right now. And hopefully you have a lot of sane people because, you know, for me, it's like most of the people in my life are okay. Like most of them are not crazy. Most of them are not off their rockers, but so many are. And that includes people I know. And uh, so it's, it's if you want to learn about <laughs> if you want to learn about people, I can't imagine a better time than right now. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free.